Happy Sabbath. I'm so happy to be here, uh, resting along with you guys on this Sabbath day. Believe me, this is, this is a little restful from the vacation that I just had. Um, I'm going to attempt to control the, the slides here. But I, um, some of you may or may not have heard that I had an incursion, uh, an event with a feathered friend. It was a, a foul experience. Uh, it was uh, a turkey that ran into my, uh, to my windshield. And let me see if I can pull up some, some pictures here. Um, I might be able to control it from my phone. Let me try. I think I got it. Okay. So uh, I was in my Subaru Forester driving down the road. All of a sudden, turkey hits uh, the front of the windshield. And I'm not, you should be able to see it now. Doesn't look that bad from there, but this was a mega turkey. It's totally smashed in my windshield and unfortunately made a hole. Uh, there was glass throughout the interior of my car, throughout me as well. It's in my hair. I lost my favorite beanie. It was full of glass. There's no coming back from that. Uh, my dog was in my front seat with me. He was also covered in glass, uninjured, thankfully, but he was looking at me like it was my fault, like I had done this to him, and, and we, we've been working out our differences since then. Uh, but I brushed him off, made sure there's no glass on him, uh, and, and uh, I'll come back to this, but this event, the turkey hitting my windshield, although it was pretty bad, wasn't the end of it. There were still some other things that happened, and I'll share a little bit more again, like I said, afterwards. But let's, before we dive into this week's message, let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Lord, our Father, be with us here today as we think on your word, as we talk about giftedness, our roles in our communities, and what we can do to be the best Christians we can be in our specific context, whatever those look like. In your name we pray, amen. If you remember any of my past sermons, you, you might remember that I picked a, a few strange topics. I picked mushrooms uh, for two of them. I talked about mycelium acting as, as the Holy Spirit in our lives and we acting as the mycelium's tools to reach out into our communities to strengthen each other, especially those who are weak and need strengthening. I then talked about Mexican jumping beings, another typical sermon topic, and talked about how we need to come out of our shells, how we can't be stuck inside. We need to use our gifts, not just for us to make ourselves comfortable, to stay out of the, the, the heat of the sun, but to take risks. Sometimes risks, risk are risks that, that make us hugely uncomfortable to help those who need us in our community. Today, I am not straying that far off from stranger topics. We're talking about the goat. I'm not going to give you a biology lesson today. I'm sorry. I apologize because I'm talking about the goat. Colin, what does goat stand for? Do you know? Greatest of all time. Thank you, Colin. So greatest of all time. Some of you might have an image popping in your head of who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about this guy. I'm not talking about him. You may have your own emotional relationship with him, the team, and the team he's on now. That's okay. Put that aside. Not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about Muhammad Ali either, uh, arguably the, the greatest of all time in his sport. I will be spending a little bit of time talking about this tiny fellow you see in that tiny picture. Uh, does anyone know who this is? Fernando. Fernando Valenzuela. Awesome. We got one person. 
All right, so uh, we'll, we'll circle back to talking about Fernando Valenzuela. But first, I'd like to talk about uh, a goat that, in my opinion, was the greatest of all time in spreading the gospel. And that would be Paul. Paul is someone who, who dedicated his life to spreading the gospel. And if we use the New Testament and other, and, and not, in the New Testament, the letters he wrote, and also the books in the New Testament that mention him, we will see that it's clearly evident that he did a, a prolific work of spreading the gospel. And not only did he do it, he did a good job of it. He was great at it. He knew how to talk to people. He knew what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. And he was in tune with God's will for his life, deeply in tune with that. And not only that, even deeper still, he was in tune with the gifts that God had given him, and he used them to great effectiveness. If you'll turn with me, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19, I'd like to identify a very interesting set of verse, verses that Paul has mentioned here in this letter, in this first letter to the people of Corinth, the Corinthians. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. And if you're following along online, you'll be able to see it on your screen now. And it says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Okay? For I'm free, I've made myself not free in a way that I might win more people. Okay, we'll come back to it. Verse 20 to 21. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Okay? It sounds from the first reading that Paul is adapting to the circumstances so that he can best help the people who need his help. Let's read that last verse uh, verse 22 of those four verses. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. This is really interesting, and before we try to dissect these words, I'd like to mention again how prolific and successful Paul was in his ministry. Take a look at this map on the screen right now. You'll see the four journeys laid out, the fourth one being his final journey that led to his end, but those three journeys... Look at all the time he took to travel through, through, the, through the Middle East and, 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 and Greece and, and, and Italy and thousands of miles. He spent talking to thousands, if not thousands upon thousands of people. And he wrote letters to these specific people in specific places. And he made one of the biggest differences, arguably a bigger difference than a lot of the disciples of Jesus were making. It's incredible to see the amount of work he did. And he wrote these verses? A few of these words confuse me a bit. All things to all people? 
If I was a missionary now here, I kind of am as a pastor, what does that look like? So, so to a gas station clerk, I become as a gas station clerk so that I may save the gas station clerks? Do I become as a PTA student so that I may save some PTA students? To those that drink and smoke, do I become as one who drinks and smokes in order to save those who drink and smoke? Is that cut and dry? There's a little more nuance to it. I think what Paul is asking us to do is realize that we are not better than anyone we are attempting to share the gospel with. In no way, shape, or form are we better than them. None of what we have done in our lives makes us so elevated that we cannot communicate with people who are oftentimes in society seen as not as good or worse than we are. I think that's what Paul is talking about. This was, and these words were, and still are a little bit of a personal struggle for me. I remember the first two years I spent here in Maine, I spent most of my time away from other Adventists, intentionally isolated to meet with people that weren't Adventists and to try to church plant. What that looked like was meeting for church in a coffee shop or a climbing gym or a tea shop or outside in a park. And our conversations weren't the same type of conversations I'd have with you here uh, in this church. And they weren't the normal conversations you'd expect. Reading the book of 1 Corinthians now has a different impact because there were times when I couldn't join people on the invitations that they would give me to certain places. Hey, Peter, would you like to join us at, at this club we're going to or this place we're going to? Oh, I'm sorry, I can't go. I didn't give too many specific reasons, but I said, I'm sorry, I can't go. But I remember a few times, times that I can count on one hand, where I did go to those places. And the reason was, if I hadn't gone, no one would have been there for that person I needed to speak to. No one would have been there. Did it take humility? Was it humility? Was it risk? Was it a bad decision? to step out and help people that needed help. I know this person needed desperate help and no one else was there for them. That person has become a really good friend of mine and I'm happy that I went. And I think I've come to realize now that to be like Paul, of course, is to be like Jesus, not to elevate Paul, but to be like Paul is to constantly be challenged by the uncomfortable And not only that, you'll often be looked down upon, taken advantage of, and not appreciated. How many of you like that? I love not being appreciated. No, not many hands. That's good. I think it's evident of something. In the Bible, we even have evidence of people lambasting or roasting Paul, saying that, hey, you know, this guy isn't that great. If you follow with me into 2 Corinthians Chapter 10 and verse 10, you'll see what I mean. So Paul, again, if he's writing a letter to you, you have some work to do, people of Corinth. If he writes two letters to you, I think that's a little telling that Corinth needed some help because Corinth said this about Paul. Paul mentioned this himself, mentions this himself. He's, he's, he's saying this and he's quoting them. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. 
not the kindest things you could say to someone trying to save your life, right? His bodily presence is weak, and he's not a good speaker. I think we can equate this to mean that Paul probably wasn't the best-looking guy in the world. Probably wasn't. He wasn't very impressive to look at. His speech wasn't very strong. But he'd seen so much trauma in his life. And he had dedicated so much of his time to trying to undo all of that, trying to make recompense, not only because he felt he owed it, but because he was joyful in doing it. And this is the response he got? I think there's a positive light that we can bring to this. Paul actually brings it himself. He takes this in stride, barely gives any time to it, mentions it, and moves on. He says, he, he uses it as an example to say, that we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to one another. That our commendation, the commendation that we get, the awards and accolades that we receive from men, worthless. Don't mean anything. The only commendation that matters is the commendation that comes from? From God, from the God above. So now, looking at this verse, it gives me courage. Because if they said that about Paul and it was even remotely true, then maybe we have a shot. Anyone can share the gospel anywhere they are in any way that they see fit. We have a chance to be the goat of spreading the gospel, the greatest of all time, because it isn't based on looks and what we have done. It's based on how we use God's gift in approaching the people that are deemed unreachable. Sort of like the people that Fernando Valenzuela would reach. There were people that the Dodgers, the Los Angeles Dodgers of the late 1970s thought were unreachable. Fernando wasn't very tall. He wasn't the best looking guy in the world. But when he was on that mound, he was the goat of pitching. Let me give you a little bit of context for Fernando Valenzuela's influence in Southern California. There was a strip of land called the Chavez Ravine. And this ravine was full of, of, of people who were now Mexican-Americans who had lived there for generations upon generations, starting from the early 1900s up until the mid-1950s. They had lived there and made their lives there. The Chavez Ravine was now being cleared to build the new L.A. Dodgers Stadium, a lucrative, huge stadium that could fit more than 78,000 people at one time. The Dodgers were not content with their stadium in Brooklyn that only, housed, that only seated 36,000 people. They needed to move up. They wanted more money. Who could they pick on? The vulnerable, the people that couldn't defend themselves. Through a loophole in the law, all of the people in, in the Chavez Ravine, most of the people in the Chavez Ravine were forcefully evicted. A lot of them were offered vouchers early on saying, hey, we will build you a new housing development if you just leave from here. And a lot of them took them, but the housing development was never built. And so for the ones that were left, the brave ones that were left standing in their own homes, I, I, I did some research and watched a video of, of one woman being carried by six officers out of her home, forcefully being evicted, penniless, on the street with nothing. Nothing. 
And once that stadium was built, do you think that the Mexican-Americans went to many Dodger games? No. What reason would they have to go? This symbol of oppression towering down at them at once where their ancestors lived. What a terrible thing to look at. Fortunately for the Dodgers, Fernando Valenzuela rose from obscurity. There was a scout that decided to go down to northern Mexico to try and find a shortstop for the L.A. Dodgers, uh, a Mexican that, that could bring in more Mexican-Americans to, to pay for tickets and fill the stands. What they didn't realize is that when they got there, the shortstop's team was being struck out at every turn, struck out every single time. Not one person got to hit one ball during that entire game at the shortstop that they were looking at. Because who was pitching? Fernando Valenzuela. He was pitching a shutout. That means no one got to hit. Every pitch was a strike. So instead of picking the shortstop, they got a left-handed pitcher from northern Mexico named Fernando. When he joined Major League Baseball, in his first game, he was supposed to be a relief pitcher. But that day, the main pitcher got injured or was not able to attend or something happened where Fernando had to end up pitching. And you know what he did that first MLB game he pitched at? He pitched a shutout. Not one major league baseball player hit one ball during that game. The Astros were utterly defeated. If you're an Astros fan, I'm sorry. The Dodgers won that one. He was called the, the, the Mexican Sandy Koufax. He was compared to Babe Ruth in his enormity and his stance uh, on, the, on the field when he was there. And he kept on winning. He kept on pitching shutout after shutout whenever he was allowed to pitch. And at 20 years old, 20 years old, he was striking out almost every singer, single major leaguer he came across, allowing one run in his entire first season as a pitcher for the L.A. Dodgers. That is impressive. Fernando Mania, as it was called, became an instant hit, and almost overnight the stadium was full of Mexican-Americans cheering on their champion. Fernando had a deep impact, not only in baseball, but for the community of Los Angeles, the community of his people. In fact, all the information I'm sharing with you today comes from a film and biography called Fernando Nation, a nation captivated by this picture. I encourage you, if you have time, to check out this amazing story in the more detailed. And although the main beneficiaries financially were the Dodgers and Fernando himself, the story remains inspiring because of the impact it had on changing the paradigm for these Mexican-Americans. Now they were proud to go to the Dodgers game because they'd had a champion to cheer for. And often, instead of the Los Angeles Dodgers, you'll hear people from L.A. saying, Los Doyers, with their Mexican-American accent. I can say that because I am Mexican-American. Don't worry. I had a similar experience with someone who came through for me at a time where I felt betrayed by my circumstances. And I'm going to be sharing a little bit more um, about what happened to me during the vacation I was on. Uh, worse than having my windshield bust open and glass all over me and my puppy and on the interior of my car, I, I had no place to stay. 
in Toledo, Ohio. So I was like, okay, let me look for a hotel. So I called two hotels and they were saying, okay, no vacancy. I was like, all right, all right. Those are the ones I wanted to stay at. Now let's try these other ones. Okay, so I called 13 more hotels, no vacancy. I called a total of 35 hotels in a 50-mile radius from Toledo, Ohio, and there were, they were no vacancies. I was like, all right, plan B, I'll get a rental car and I'll just drive back. I called a rental car company. Sorry, we got no cars. I called a total of 13 rental car companies, zero cars, nothing. I was stranded. I was dropped off at a safe flight across from a nightclub, and I was stuck there stranded in my car. You know, that, the safe flight from the safe flight repair, safe flight replace, that one. I was right there, right in front with the windshield broken, but they couldn't work on it then because they were closed and they wouldn't open for another two days. And it was just a whole ordeal. I'd been posting on my story on Instagram about what had happened. On my social media, I was posting stories about, hey, I'm okay. This happened. It's kind of a big deal. I think insurance is going to cover it. It should be okay. But also, I got no place to stay and I'm stranded here between the club and safe flight. And I was kind of scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. Am I going to sleep in this car full of glass the entire night, waiting until Safe Light opens and they can fix my windshield? I received a call from a friend named Joey Brahas, who is a, a pastor friend of mine who is doing his master's right now at Andrews. He called me and he said, Peter, I'm coming to pick you up. He didn't ask me, Are you okay? He didn't ask me, How are you doing? Did you get something to eat? No, he said, Peter, I'm coming to pick you up. And he drove five hours to come and get me. And then he drove five hours back to let me stay with him at his house, to eat his food, to sleep on his bed as he slept on the couch. That's a good friend, right? That's a good quality friend. Everyone needs a friend like Joey Barajas. He was nowhere close, but he made the journey to come get me. A journey that obviously would have taken the Apostle Paul a lot longer on foot. But I think the point stands that we are called to be the kind of friend and missionary to the people around us that Joey was to me and that Paul was to the early Christian church. And that Fernando was, in a way, to his people in Southern California. My friend Joey was a missionary in this instance, echoing the teachings of Jesus that Paul based all of his actions on. We can do the same. We can be there for all people by realizing that they are just like us, broken and in need of a Savior. The actual greatest of the great, the greatest of all time, the Prince of Peace. Little steps can get us there. And we need to start yesterday, but we can start today. So next time you go somewhere to put gas in your car, eat dinner, shop, Put yourself in the shoes of the person you're interacting with. Don't ever think that you're better than anyone else because you're not. We're all broken. We all are in need of, of saving. What would you like to hear as you're working the, the, the cash register or while you're walking your dog or driving your car or mowing your lawn? What words or actions would bring comfort to you? If you were starving, would you rather have a glow tract or a sandwich? Or both, in a little packet. <laughs> if you're working the register, would you prefer someone completely ignoring you and only focusing on their groceries and getting their groceries? Maybe you would. But everyone's different. Not everyone needs attention, but everyone needs our respect 
and our kindness and our love. And I'll end by saying this. Practice won't make perfect. It won't. But it just might make you the greatest of all time at sharing the gospel. Let's bow our heads and pray quickly. Dear Lord, encourage us to do better. Not only better, different. May we take risks. May we learn that and, and recognize that we are just like everyone else, broken. But the small repairs that have been done to us by you on our heart, we can share with others the instructions of how to be in that repair. May we seek this out in our day-to-day lives. May we, during this prayer right now, think of specific situations in which we interact with your people, in which we can be blessings to them. Thank you, God, for your message today from your word. May it be something that we act upon and not just think about. May we pray. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's message. For more content or to connect with us, visit us online at brunswickadventist.church.